Today's scripture reading is from Romans 16, verses 25 through 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that is, was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Christ, through Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, Eliza and Church. If you have not already, please meet me in Romans chapter 16, verse 25 through 27. I am not going to promise that I will not cry today because <laughs> we are coming to the end of Romans. Uh, and if this is your first Sunday with us, you're going to get the cliff notes because we have been in Romans for four years um, and we are concluding that study today. Thanks be to God. Um, one of the things, and no, no whistling, no cheering. Um, that's going to make me cry too quickly. Uh, my name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square and it's good to open up this word uh, with you. Um, one of the things I think that we learn the longer we navigate this life, is that our souls really long for mystery, but our minds aren't having it. Our minds are not having the mystery that our soul desires. See, throughout history, we've sought, it seems, to eradicate as much mystery as we possibly can from modern society. And this is particularly true in prevailing cities and urban environments like Chicago. We can track this back all the way back to the third century, believe it or not. A philosopher named Epicurus, who was brought into public awareness by this popular poet named Lucretus, uh, believed that the world was essentially split in two. There was the sacred made for the gods, and there was the secular made for humanity, made for people, made for the earth. Scholar N.T. Wright explains that the Epicureans declared that the gods, if they existed at all, were totally removed from the world and never intervened in its affairs. So the Cretus work, the poet, and Epicurus, the philosopher, their thought was lost for about a thousand years. So if you feel like your work is not appreciated, take heart. Take heart. Maybe in a thousand years, someone is going to find your marketing strategy that you've been working on as a consultant in the loop, and it will come back to relevancy because it was rediscovered in the 15th century. It became widely accepted and deeply formative in major European cities, right? calls this the split-level world, or this idea of the split-level perspective. And over the course of the next 500 years, three different revolutions take place in history that essentially solidify or embed this split-level world view into our collective psyche. And you no doubt have this embedded in you, and you probably don't even know it. See, there was this revolution of technology or science, of politics, and of theology. And in each revolution, it seemed to target mystery and eradicating mystery. Technologically, we de developed modern medicine and the internet. And now, you never have to wonder if that person likes you. All you have to do is swipe left or right, and you know the mystery is taken out. Right? Politically, we rejected monarchies and established democracies. The mystery of hidden power has been essentially taken back people and by the people. Theologically, we traded this bully in the sky idea of who God is to a benevolent yet impersonal higher power that gives us space to pretty much do as we please. See, the mystery of the divine has been placed with the so-called common sense of simply doing good to others, including, if not particularly, doing good for ourselves. 
See, with each revolution, be it technological, political, or theological, the wider this divide between the secular and sacred has become, and therefore the less mystery that has persisted. Less God, more us, or at least so we suppose. Here's N.T. Wright again. Just because we observe evolution doesn't mean there can't be a God who is active within the process as well as above and beyond it. Just because we want to cast off tyranny, that doesn't mean there can't be divine impulses and constraints in democracy. Just because we don't like prevailing theology, that doesn't mean there isn't a better and indeed more biblical one. In other words, what is Wright saying? That our attempt to eradicate mystery has not necessarily been that effective. We can't get rid of it. Nevertheless, we've learned to be really suspicious of mystery. That's what I want to talk about today because how Paul ends this letter to Rome. He ends it with mystery. Specifically, he's going to help us see how the entire story of God can be understood through the lens of a mystery revealed, specifically Jesus Christ. That's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about the beauty of this revealed mystery and how ought to inform our daily lives in this split-level world. Here's how we'll organize our time. We'll look at the nature of this mystery, we'll look at the effect of the mystery, and we'll look at our response to the mystery. So the nature, the effect, and the response. Let's ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, uh, left, left to ourselves, these are words on a paper, on a piece of paper in a book, or on a screen, but with you, it can reshape our hearts. By your grace and according to your will and your purposes and your power, it can transform the way we see our neighbors, the way we understand who you are, and the way we take up space in this world. And so that is deeply hopeful for us because that tells us that what lays before us in the next moments is not about us in and of ourselves working hard to figure it out. It's about learning to surrender to the God who graciously makes himself known. And so would you do that through this word today? Because that is what we are desperate for. We're desperate to see, know, and enjoy you. Not only individually, but as a people. Would you help us as sisters and as brothers, as a spiritual family, would you help us to embody the truths that you desire to speak to us today? We ask all of that and a thousand other things we're not even wise enough to ask you for. We ask that you would do that for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. So God is a mystery, but... That doesn't mean he can't be known. After all, the entire Bible, we could say, if not all of human history, is a visible and tangible and awe-inspiring dis display of who God is, what he's like, and what he's up to. We heard about this all the way back in Romans chapter 1, verse 19. Nevertheless, he is a mystery. The prophet Isaiah says, truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel the Savior. So God is hidden and he is unseen, but this does not mean he is unknowable. It doesn't mean that Epicurus was right, that the world is divided between the sacred, the unknown, and the secular, the known. Rather, God is mysterious because he is only known on his terms. God is only known on his terms. Or we might say, God is only known because he reveals himself. God is only known because he reveals himself. He can't be discovered. He can't be happened upon. He can't be figured out. But graciously, God is a God who gives himself up all the time. This makes knowledge of God fundamentally different 
than our knowledge of, say, the Earth's roundness. And for some of us, this is really frustrating. Through scientific research and testing, the spherical nature of Earth was first discovered by Greek philosophers and astrologists in the 5th century BC, but no amount of that same research or that same type of testing can prove God. Isn't that frustrating? Wouldn't you love it if we was just scientific method and we can figure out the divine? For many of us, taking away that mystery we think would give us peace. It would settle us. And for, perhaps for some of you, that's when and how you would believe in God. If he could be proven in the same way that the earth's roundness is proven, but he has not discovered this way. Rather, he reveals himself. This doesn't make God less true or less real. Rather, it makes knowledge of God of a different order. Because you see, unlike the earth or knowledge of the earth, knowledge of God is highly relational. It's relational. It's like when I was a kid. We used to play hide-and-seek as a family, and whenever one of the kids was it, my dad somehow was always the last person found. And after a few minutes, the siblings would gang together. This is the only thing we ever agreed upon. Let's find dad together. Um, I had three siblings, two brothers and a sister, and so we all ganged together to try to find dad. And as we started to search for him, we would start to hear a growl right? Or a scratching sound on the wall. It was terrifying. Or a bird chirp or something, some kind of sound knocking. We'd follow the sound, we'd turn a corner, and my dad would jump out, scare us to death, and then we would all laugh and we would all hug. It was idyllic. It was wonderful. It was a great moment. Core memory, absolutely. But you see, we never found my dad, ever. He always found us. Always. He revealed himself. And it was all about our relationship with him. If I didn't know who was hiding, that would be terrifying. <laughs> I would not know what to expect. But it was my dad. And I knew that every sound I could hear that was leading me to him was going to result in joy. Am I preaching to you yet? This is what it's like with our Lord. This is what it's like to know him. That's precisely what Paul is getting at in verse 25 in our passage today. Look at Romans 16, verse 25. He says, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ago or long ages. Notice the second half of this verse explains the mystery of God. That is the knowledge of the gospel or of Christ. It was kept secret for ages, but then it was what? Revealed. That's the nature of the mystery. It's a revealed mystery. In fact, we see this in the syntax, the grammatical structure of this verse and the following. See, the mystery that was kept for, uh, secret for ages, long ages, is in the perfect tense. That means it's of an eternal nature with ongoing effect. God is a mystery, Paul is saying, and he'll be that way forever. But then in the next verse, in verse 26, it says, has now been disclosed is in the aorist tense. That means it's pointing to a definitive action. So through the grammatical structure of the Greek language, what Paul is telling us is that God is a mystery and he will be forever, but he will reveal himself. He will reveal himself. See, God can't be known without an act of God. So how exactly does God do this? How does the mystery, or rather, how does he reveal this mystery? Theologian uh, Gerald Bray points out in his book, The Doctrine of God, that the fact that we know God through revelation demonstrates this relational nature that we've been discussing. 
We can learn many things by watching someone act, but it's when they speak that we learn the most about them. Similarly, we learn some things about God by watching him. Paul says this in Romans 1, by beholding his creation. There's a lot of things we can learn about God. Theologians call this general revelation, but it is his special revelation that comes most accurately through what? His word, his self-disclosure. Bray explains we may have ideas about God, but in the final analysis, our perceptions must be open to correction by what he tells us about himself. In other words, I may have a thought about God, but I ought to go to his word to check whether or not that thought is accurate. Wouldn't we want the same thing in all of our relationships? You noticed a behavior from me. You saw me post something online, but then you presumed and assumed that you understood my character or I understood your character. But the thing that would bring a lot more clarity is what? If we talk to each other. Are you with me? We don't like doing that. Why? Because then all of our emotions, all the things that we might thought were true, all get checked. They all get corrected. The writer of Hebrews teases out this divine self-disclosure, perhaps more directly than any other biblical writer. The writer of Hebrews begins his book this way. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Notice there are two ways that God has revealed himself to us through his word or, or in through history. Rather, we might say there's two aspects of God's word. There is the spoken word and the incarnate word. The spoken word of God and the incarnate word of God. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that every word God spoke through the prophets, like a growl or a scratch or a sound in the dark, is all made clear when Jesus shows up. That Christ, in essence, is God jumping out from the shadows and saying, here I am, I found you. Here I am. God can't be discovered but he makes himself known through his word, mysteriously through the prophets, but then most fully, completely, and joyfully through his son. That's the nature of the mystery. It's the revealed word of God. It's the relational word of God. Now, here's the real Maybe you're wondering, why would he do this? Why would he do it this way? Why wouldn't he just reveal the complete story from the very beginning? Why all the setup? Why all the long ago in many different ways? If you were going to get, just get to the point, right? Just send Jesus right away. Have you ever wondered this? Why take generations to ask these questions? Why take generations to speak through the prophets? Why go through all of this? Why not just reveal all of this? See, answering these questions and more, I think, really reveals to us not just the nature of the mystery, but the effect that it's meant to have on us. In fact, it has on us in a fractured and split-level world. You see, sin entered the story back in the garden. Genesis chapter 3, our first parents, Adam and Eve, ate of the only tree that God said, don't eat of that one. Enjoy everything else except that one. And then for thousands of years, they waited. They waited for the serpent's head to be crushed, as we looked at last week about um, God's victory over Satan. They waited long for generations and generations born and die in sin without the clarity of the cross. They had to wait. They had to wonder. They had to wrestle with mystery. They only had the spoken word of God. We had to wait. We had to sit in the unrevealed mystery. Specifically, God's people had to endure false and corrupt prophets, misguided care of a fractured priesthood and sacrificial system, and a messy monarchy, 
All the while, what are they doing? They're longing, they're convulsing, they're desiring for the mystery to be dissipated and for all to be revealed, for the Messiah to come, for God to stop hiding and make himself known. This is what they're waiting for. And it's natural for us to go, why would God do that? That seems like torture. Why all the hiding? Well, through the disappointment of the prophets, what we see over and over again, particularly in places like Micah chapter 2, is that God taught his people about the truth, about his truth. Through the repetition of fractured sacrificial systems, God was teaching his people about holiness, about his holiness. And through the pain of these messy monarchies, God taught his people about his power, his integrity. And his providence over their lives. You see, like my dad playing hide and seek, the waiting was fostering love and intimacy and joy in their waiting and in God's hiddenness. He was making himself known. He was making himself known. Through his spoken word, he was preparing them, in other words, to see and savor his incarnate word. It's like when you're 40 and that lesson that your parents taught you at 16, you go, oh, that's what they meant. Why did it take me 20 years? Because over and over again, the slow drip of human knowledge of mystery being revealed, that was the setup that it took to fully comprehend. I couldn't understand at 16. I couldn't understand as a child. This also is what makes parenting so hard. There are so many lessons we are trying. If you would just listen to me, it would save you 20 years of pain. But okay. All right, you're going to act like, go for it, right? On either side, we learn to wrestle with ultimately God's wise plan to unfold the mystery of God. You see, we instinctively know there's a power in the mystery. There's a power in the waiting, but it's so frustrating to wait. We don't want to do it. Sinclair Ferguson brilliantly connects the particular ways that Jesus, the incarnate word, then is the one who fully is the true and better version of every institution of ancient Israel. In other words, every spoken word of God. He explains that Jesus is the true and better prophet who speaks and embodies God's truth in the flesh. That Jesus is the true and better priest who doesn't simply make a sacrifice. He is the holy and perfect sacrifice of God. Jesus is the true and better king who leads his people with complete integrity and eternal power. See, the nature of the revealed mystery is instructive to us because we are still waiting too, aren't we? We may have Christ. We may know Christ. But we still find ourselves in relationships, in situations, in seasons, in power, his holiness, his truth seem hidden and mysterious, right? I mean, this is what makes the Christian journey so challenging. We read a truth in the scriptures and we say, God, I don't see it. Or we experience something as we navigate this text with a group and go, I see it in their life. Why not in mine? Faith looks simple for her. Seems like she trusts the Lord at every turn. Why doesn't that happen for me? It seems like you're providing for them, but you're not providing for me. Am I preaching to you yet, church, that we're still living in this mystery and it's deeply frustrating? So what does Paul help us to understand? See, this is the effect that this has, that God is teaching us in our waiting. In fact, he is shaping something in you through silence and through mystery that I believe cannot be shaped in you otherwise, or else he would do it. If you are waiting, it's not because God has forgotten. 
If you are caught in mystery, it's not because God does not want you to know him. It is because he is shaping something in your heart that you are learning to embody and enjoy that you could not possibly otherwise. Therefore, the mystery itself is a grace to you. It is a grace to me. Particularly because, we know this, because the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, breaks down this split-level world. See, in our waiting, we believe God is up there doing his sacred thing, and I'm down here in the secular, real-world space that he's obviously ignoring. See, we believe the lie that the world is divided. But Jesus does not divide the world into the holy and unholy. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. See, contrary to Epicureanism, Reverend Fleming Rutledge says that the New Testament message takes bodily life seriously. The way God has chosen to reveal himself demonstrates that God is not removed from your everyday life. He doesn't submit to our split-level paradigm. Quite the opposite, my brothers and sisters. In Christ, the sacred is invading the secular every single day. Through Christ, God entered into our daily, fleshly, bodily, and mundane lives. The mystery, y'all, took on flesh. And that's the good news. In fact, in her Easter sermon in 1997, Rutledge explained that God's life has appeared in the world in Jesus Christ in a form that could be heard, seen, and touched. That's not a mistake. This is fantastic. God is a mystery, and yet He speaks He is visible. He is physical. The nature of the mystery completely transforms our understanding of its effect on us. Look again, Romans chapter 16, verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. Paul highlights two key effects that this revealed mystery has on us, that the waiting has on us. The first You may not like this, but it strengthens you. It strengthens you. Waiting strengthens you in a way that revelation does not. The gospel makes us strong because a battle takes place while we are waiting. We're trying to find our footing when we wait. That word strengthen really means to establish or give grounding. And so what Paul is saying is that the gospel, Jesus himself, stabilizes our lives. Let's think about Jesus. As prophet, priest, and king, as we've just looked and seen from the spoken to in his incarnate word, and, and ask how does that revealed mystery, the incarnate word, stabilize us in a fractured and split-level world? See, because Jesus is the true and better prophet, we can trust his word. And in a split-level world, we are tempted to trust the wisdom of the day, even though it changes all the time. So whatever people may be saying in books in one generation or in Instagram influencers the next, we have this tendency to try to find footing on the latest, most updated wisdom of the day. And what the scriptures teach us is that your feet will only find a sure foundation in the word of God through every generation because Jesus is the true and better prophet. Not only so, but because Jesus is the true and better priest, we can trust his salvation. Many of us, perhaps you grew up in the church, believe, okay, God helps me with my religious life. But, but, but my, my work at the bank, my work in the school, my work as a husband, wife, or as a parent, that really comes down to me. 
I may have a prayer life and I may read the scriptures, but after I do that in the morning with my cup of coffee, then it's about my energy and my hustle. That, in essence, is not trusting in the salvation of Jesus. That, in essence, is trusting in the salvation of myself. That I'll give God credit for saving my soul, but I've got my mind and the rest of my healing and all of the globe on my shoulders. Because Jesus is also the true and better king, we can trust his lordship. This too, especially for those who grew up in a religious context, we are so tempted to trust our own authority and call it God. So let's be honest for just a second. Let's be real. It's one, of the, it's one thing to sing a song on Sunday. It's brilliant. You guys sounded great today. It was fantastic. I've never heard you sound better, right? It's one thing to listen to a sermon. It's another thing to trust him with bedtime, right? Parents, can I get an amen? That is when we are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, right? And we fear a ton of evil <laughs> in the middle of that. It's one thing to trust him on Sunday. It's another thing to let him tell us where to live and how much money to spend and how much money to share and who we're supposed to date and what job we're supposed to take. See, when we believe in a split-level world, we give God our sacred Sundays, but we take Monday through Saturday. But if Jesus is Lord and he is our sure foundation, if he is the one that settles our soul, if he's the one that Paul says strengthens us, then lordship is about surrendering my entire life to him, not just the places and moments that I call sacred. This is the effect that the revealed mystery has on us. It makes us strong. It stabilizes you. Don't you want to be stable in an ever-shifting, chaotic world? Jesus says, then stand on me. In fact, when his disciples in Matthew 16 came into this very broken place called Caesarea Philippi, and he looks out at all of them, this contentious environment in the first century. And he says, who do people say that I am? They say, Elijah, one of the prophets. He's like, that's a pretty good reputation, but that's not who I am. Peter comes up. It's always Peter. Love Peter. He's ready to talk with zero background, with zero information. He's just like, I got something to say. And this time the broken clock was right, right? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, yes, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Why? Because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And then here's what he says. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church. On this rock, on my identity, Jesus says, I'm going to build your life and the life with my people. See, when we find the word, the salvation, and the authority of this world fleeting, it's because we are not fully giving ourselves over to the one who is truly stable and solid ground, Jesus. That helps us see the secondary effect. See, when we're grounded and stabilized in Christ, we learn to obey him. Look at Romans 16, verse 26. But has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has made known to all the nation, to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about, let's just say, the obedience of faith. The fact that the Son of God took on flesh empowers us to obey without all of the information while we are waiting. That's faith, isn't it? In other words, God knows that Jesus' arrival would not mean all of our questions are answered and that all mystery would be gone. He knew that we would be walking through mystery. That was never the point. Faith is the act of trusting and obeying in the midst of mystery. 
So if you look at your brother and sister who is walking by faith, it's not because they've got it figured out. Trust me, I probably know them. They don't have it all figured out. And if you look at my life and think that I've just hang out a little bit longer and you'll be like, nope, that was wrong. Poor assessment. None of us do. All of us are learning to navigate faith and obey in the middle of mystery. That's faith. That's what he taught his people for generations, not just Israel. Notice Paul says, all nations, all ethnic, all the Gentiles, all the peoples. Paul leaned into this tension when he wrote to Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. For we now see in a mirror in what? And dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. So the gospel church, my sister and my brother, empowers us to live in a fractured and undone world. How? By giving us wisdom, by giving us love, hope, joy, faith, grounding us in ultimate reality. Religion says, here are the rules to follow. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm going to teach you what wisdom looks like, what love looks like, hope and joy and faith, especially when you don't have the full picture. That's the effect of the revealed mystery. We are stabilized in a fractured and undone world when we stand on the rock of Christ. But this passage isn't first and foremost a lesson. Fundamentally, it is what's called a doxology. A doxology is a transcription of a compound Greek word. The roots doxa, glory, and logia, which means words, are mashed together, giving us this idea of words of glory. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. This tells us about our response to the revealed mystery. If the revealed mystery is the glorious self-disclosure of God's spoken and incarnate word, then our response is the reciprocation of glory. In other words, what? Worship. Worship. Notice, Paul begins and ends this passage with instructions of worship. Look at the beginning of verse 25. Now to him who? He's pointing our gaze upward to behold God. And then how does he end in verse 27? To the only wise God be glory forever through Christ Jesus Christ. Amen. Suffice to say, the right response to God's gracious revelation of himself, making himself known through Christ in such a way that stabilizes us in a fractured and undone world, the right response is worship. It's worship. Specifically, we worship him for his wisdom, Paul says. While there is much left to discover, mystery will persist in our lives. In your life, my brother, in your life, you will not have all of the answers. But there's also so much that God has shown you about himself. In fact, if you know anything about God, it has been given to you as a gift. We cannot know him outside of his grace. So if you know anything about him, it is because he has graciously revealed it to you. Therefore, you have plenty of material to glorify him for. See, according to his perfect wisdom, he remains hidden. According to his perfect wisdom, he has revealed himself. That's the mystery our souls long for, and we should respond in worship. Not because everyone in our family is healthy, we worship God. Not because every question we have about our career path is answered. We worship God, are you hearing this, in the middle of the mystery. God, I'm trusting that you have shown me all that you want to show me, and I'm trusting you with what I don't know yet. I'm going to worship you for both of those things at the same time. That takes faith. That's hard. That's our response to the revealed mystery. I think this ought to be our response to the entire book of Romans. 
Think about all that God has taught us about himself. We began this study April 19th, 2020. Some of you weren't even born yet, right? It's been a minute. We began way back April 19, 2020, Romans 1, the righteousness of God was revealed from faith to faith. God revealed his righteousness to us, and so we worship him for his righteousness. Romans chapter 2, the work of God is inward. At the level of the heart, his spirit works on us, and so we worship God that he works on our hearts, not just our behavior. Romans 3, the righteousness of God justifies us because it's manifested in Christ apart from the law. And so we worship God because he has justified us by love. Romans 4, God's righteousness was given to Abraham, our forebearer, by grace through faith. And so we worship God. Why? Because his salvation is one of grace. Romans 5, the peace of God has been given to us through Christ. So we worship God for his peace. God gives us life as a free gift in exchange for his son. He takes on the wages of our sin, our death, and so we worship God for his eternal life. Romans chapter 7, God meets us in our daily battle and desires of good and evil that wage war in our souls, and so we worship God who meets us in the affliction and our suffering. Romans 8, God promises that in all suffering we are more than conquerors because he loves us. And so we worship God because he loves. He is love. The salvation of God, Romans 9, is a matter of his election, not our perfection. And so we worship God for his election, his gracious providence over our lives. Romans 10, God is the same Lord of all nations, so no one is put to shame. And so we worship God, the one who washes away our shame. Romans 11, the mercies of God are gifts of his calling. They are irrevocable. They can't be taken away. And so we worship God for his mercy. Romans 12, through his mercy, God is transforming us by the renewal of our mind. And so we worship a God who is like, I'm not done with you yet. He is renewing you. Romans 13, stay with me. By his spirit, God empowers us to walk in love and resist making provisions for the flesh. And so we worship God that his spirit is alive and well in your heart. The indwelling spirit. Romans 14, God is our judge. Therefore, we learned not to judge others and to live as those who one day would be judged by God. And so we worship God for his perfect judgment. Romans 15, the God of endurance and encouragement makes us one and enables his people to live in harmony. And so we worship the God who brings together his people. Romans 16, God has revealed all his glorious nature and character through his son. And so we worship God most of all for the revealed mystery, his son, Jesus Christ. He has taught us much. And so we worship him for it. My brothers and sisters, he has taught us a great deal. So may we respond and worship. There's a lot I know you still have questions about. Me too. So let's meet next week too, right? Let's meet this week as well. Let's continue to not grow weary in doing good and not give up meeting together because he who promised is faithful. There's much more to be revealed. And let's worship him for his from us what we are not ready for yet. Theologian Marvadon explained that worship was the goal of the Christian life. She writes her book, in her book, In the Beginning, that for more and more seconds of each day, 
what we think and do and say is to God's glory that every moment is worship of the true God instead of the various idols of our making or of our cultures. See, worship is our stabilizing response to this fractured and undone world. Worship is our embrace of Christ who is reconciling, renewing, redeeming, and making all things secular and all things sacred, new and one and whole and healed. To be sure, you may still like you, feel like you're fumbling around in the dark, following faint sounds, but never quite discovering God and His plans. It may feel pointless, but do not eradicate the mystery. Wait in it. Wait in the mystery. Follow that voice that you hear. Embrace it. Allow it to shape love and intimacy and joy in your spirit because church in the square, rest assured, at just the right time, God makes himself known. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help because waiting is really frustrating almost always. We are not a very patient people. And so help us in the mystery. Help us in the waiting. Help us in the suffering and pain. Help us in our questions. Help us with our curiosity. Help us in all of our relationships that seem undone. Help us in the things that we know and don't know about who you are to trust in the true and better prophet, to trust in the true and better king, to trust in the true and better priest who is a firm foundation for our souls. Help us to trust you, our heavenly Father, who knows what we need and graciously reveals yourself out of love and with the perfect time and the perfect way. We ask that you would do this so that we would become a worshipful people that you're calling us to be, not just with our voices, but with our very beings and bodies. May we offer to you, as Paul wrote in Romans 12, a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you. It's to this end that we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.